This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Market here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those who are affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. We're going to be talking with the Chief Investment Officer of of key private bank. But Professor, always good to get your take to start off the show. We had a little bit of volatility in the small cap segment of the market in particular. How are you looking at the, the latest developments? Yeah, well, I, I uh, said uh, yesterday I was on uh, uh, Bloomberg TV. I, I said I thought I would not be surprised to see a um, uh, correction, a pullback, 5 to 10% from the highs that, that we reached uh, a week ago. Um, we're, we're, uh, we're in a seasonally difficult time, late August, uh, September. Um, Delta variant is still a problem. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we've had a long, long run. So we'll see. It's, it's a good market today, uh, you know, and we'll see if it can surpass that high. Then the, I, I'm not calling an end of the, of the bull market. I think the bull market is, is is still on, but I think there's a there's there's an accumulation of factors that might give pressure uh, to stocks uh, going uh, forward. All, you know, we we um, uh, also have uh, inflation to contend with. Oil is definitely down, but supply side chain problems are not going away. In fact, they could be getting worse. And with the developments that we see uh, in the rest of the world, in China and others, about avoiding the the Delta variant that could put more pressure on uh, those supply problems. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see a correction. Of course, it's very difficult to pick the market exactly at any particular point. And um, you have two big positive things going. You have the earnings that are still strong, however, You've got to beat by an awful lot now to have your to have your stock really rise on those earnings. But the the uh, there ain't no alternative is still the most powerful. The long bond at 130. Um, there's just no competition there in the markets, in my opinion, that uh, would give stocks uh, a lot of pressure. Yeah, that small cap segment has has fallen by your sort of five to ten percent range from yeah. from its highs already. I mean, is that a continuation sort of that that sort of an early indicator of the sort of more cyclical side? Maybe the the, the virus fears, slow slowing growth fears, but just hasn't made its way to large caps that that might filter in. I I think that that's precisely the the, the case there. That uh, the the small cap being much more domestic than than international. Um, uh, and with the virus calling, causing the, the pullback here more than a pullback abroad, although they're having issues with the virus, 
Um, they they never snap back as fast. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm seeing that come that come back. That being said, I mean, there's a lot of values in those small caps. I would not be surprised to see uh, them rally through uh, through the end of the through the end of the year. But you're right. We've seen the that, that five to ten percent pullback has already occurred in the in the small cap stocks. We've been teasing out Jackson Hole, and the next week we're going to see the the announcement from, yes. from Powell. Some people say this Delta variant might put a delay to that. I think that that's not going to happen because uh, I think the feedback that the bank presidents and the board members are getting from down on the ground is, listen, uh, we, we've got price increases here. Uh, we've got uh, employment shortages. Yes, we might have a slowdown on the Delta, but um, it's very likely to be temporary. Uh, with the pickup in vaccinations and the, and the pickup of uh, the number of people infections, and by October we might see it down. Uh, we we can't you know delay it any longer. I think that uh, Powell will go ahead with an announcement. I should also say um, uh, that it is possible that if inflation data is gets worse, that the Fed could raise begin raising rates before the end of the taper. Now, some people say, you know, are, are, are thinking that that, that is uh, not going to happen and may not happen. Uh, some people think it's theoretically impossible. That's not true. Uh, you could raise the rates and still be in the taper mode. You don't have to complete the taper completely. And at the pace that we're getting the word out, that won't be until late summer next year. Um, but if inflation comes in worse, we might begin to see that move up uh, uh, at the same time that the taper uh, is, is occurring. Don't, don't rule that out uh, as a possibility next year. Will it shock the market? It'll give the market some pause, but again, the market does want the Fed to, to slow down on money growth. And by the way, this time next week, we'll, we will have the money growth uh, for July. comes out on the fourth uh, Thursday of the month. We'll take a look at whether that uh, July, um, June uh, cutback in money supply growth uh, persisted in July. Uh, I, uh, that would, that's going to be a very important data point for me um, looking forward. Professor, let me bring in George Mateo really quickly. So I'd be kind of curious to know just how you think about valuation these days. Um, you know, you mentioned earnings are explosive, and I would totally agree with that. But at what point do you think valuation becomes a bit of an issue for, for stocks going forward? Well, that's, you know, so we have the S&P at 44.35 right now. Um, if you take the 12-month forward earnings, I just looked it up this morning. Uh, S&P earnings, which are, uh, you know, 5 to 10 percent lower than uh, FACS at Reuters, uh, Thompson, etc. Um, they're, they're a little bit more conservative. Um, uh, they're looking uh, at 12 months out at 208. My feeling is it's going to be closer, uh, I believe, uh, assuming the you know, Delta variant gets under control, which I think is, is, is the most likely case. I think it's going to be closer to 220, which gives us uh, exactly a 20 multiple. A 20 multiple is just about, 
a good average multiple, certainly in an environment of extremely low interest rates. Um, so um, even if you assume the 208 figure, then we're at about a 22 multiple. You know, again, we are uh, with with the rate structure as it is, um, that is not at all um, an unusual. So I, I don't think the market given rate is stretched, which means it could have, you know, a way to go um, going upward. I mean, again, uh, there is no alternative. Where else am I going to go? And you still get a dividend yield even on the S&P one and a half now. Now it isn't the two plus that we had before, um, but that's uh, the uh, that's still better than the 10 year. And of course, there's no escalation for inflation on on the 10 year. So, again, people are going to say on cash. Uh, with uh, with inflation coming up, uh, it's something as I, I can't keep it in cash either. So real assets going to be the choice, um, and that could drive valuations, uh, you know, significantly uh, higher. We'll have to see. Professor, one thing we haven't got your take on in the last few weeks uh, that's been a real focus for the markets uh, has been international and China in particular has been doing yeah. all these clampdowns on their stocks and a lot of upheaval. I mean, their China tech stocks are down 50% from their highs. What are you? What do you think about what's happening there? And any any views on is that becoming a quote unquote uninvestable segment of the market to you? I'm not an expert on China, um, uh, but my my feeling is that whenever someone says something is uninvestable, so I, I think I want to go into it. I I, I think I think it was last uh, it wasn't one at last June when when uh, the uh, oil sector became an uninvestable by everybody's uh, standard. Um, uh, you're going to get more value to. I I cannot believe um, that. The Chinese think that they can do it alone uh, and don't need any American support for their capital markets going forward um, and uh, don't want to discourage capital uh, going forward for their growth. Um, uh, their, their, their growth rates are slowing and uh, they, they need drivers on their, on their growth also. I think, it, I think it's more of a, an opportunity. Um, yes, the emerging markets have come down. Yes, uh, you know, a lot of uh, those sectors have come down. Um, but that means that if you're a dollar cost averager in the long run, uh, I think you could benefit. Well, very good, Professor. Thanks for giving us some comments to, to start the show. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Uh, we're going to be talking for uh, the first part of this program with George Mateo, who's the Chief Investment Officer at Key Private Bank. Uh, George, welcome to Behind the Market. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeremy. This is a real treat. Thank you. Um, maybe any, any reactions? Uh, you got the professor's take on valuations. Anything as, as you look at the world today, what's, what's your high-level outlook and, and things that uh, you're thinking about at, at Key Private Bank? Yeah, I might be boring because I can agree with a lot of what he said. I think uh, I think he's spot on. You know, I think we're kind of going through we're kind of going through three transitions right now, Jeremy. I mean, I think the first one is that the the economy is certainly transitioning from the early stage of a recovery to more of a mid cycle expansion. Um, secondly, as the professor talked about, uh, we're going through kind of a transition to the Fed regime. So they're they're kind of starting to talk about tapering and tightening. Perhaps we're not quite there yet. I don't think we're quite. 
I don't think it's likely we're going to see a, a tightening for the tapering. Uh, but that's another transition that markets have to navigate around. And then the third thing, of course, as the professor mentioned, is this Delta variant. I mean, that's another you know, transition in the story around coronavirus that is still with us for, for a while, unfortunately. So I think that we kind of have to navigate through this. This is a seasonal period of some, some difficulty, as the professor also mentioned. I think that uh, you know, the market's kind of searching for leadership right now. You've seen you know, the big high-flying tech stocks and the unprofitable tech stocks take a pause. Um, they were previously market leaderships. You talked about small caps. They were previous market leaderships. Yeah, the defenses aren't really acting super well either. So I think the market's kind of just looking for some direction right now in the near term. And I would also probably agree that maybe if a 5 or 10% correction came along, it wouldn't surprise us. But we still think the secular trend for the bull market's intact. And so this is more like a cyclical transition period of time before we get back to the secular growth environment where, again, in our view, 2022 should be a pretty decent year. Profits should be up. The economy should be expanding. And that's still a pretty good backdrop for equities in general in our view. So what are you suggesting now for, for this transition? You know, how do you how do you manage portfolios? Uh, are there certain factors, sectors you tend to favor at this, this point in the cycle? I think the big thing we want to emphasize is quality, right? So we don't have a particular strong view on growth versus value. I personally think some of those labels might be a, a little bit antiquated to some extent, but more so, I think we really want to emphasize high-quality companies. And frankly, Jeremy, those companies could exist in growth indices. They can grow. They can exist in value indices. You know, a high-quality, high-value um, cyclical company could be perfectly legitimate alongside a high-quality uh, growth kind of technology healthcare type of company. So I think just focusing on high-quality companies. You know, companies that generate really strong return on invested capital, companies that have strong balance sheets. You know, those are the type of attributes that we look for. You know, the other thing we would probably lean towards is, as Professor mentioned, is that I think a lot of the babies are being thrown out with a bathwater in, in China in the emerging markets. So we don't directly invest in securities there on behalf of our clients, but we partner with third-party managers and strategists to find opportunities there. And I tend to agree that anytime that somebody says something's uninvestable, I think that may be an interesting place to look. So uh, we've been thinking emerging markets might deserve some attention again. I think the dollars had a bit of a bid lately, and that might actually reverse some time if the, uh, the Delta variant starts to fade a little bit. And for those reasons, we would also shift a little bit more towards international as well. So those are a couple of things to look for. Um, and, and then the, second, the third thing I say also is the notion that I think a, a traditional asset class portfolio, asset class of 60-40, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, that 60-40 model is dead in our view. Uh, so in, in commercially, we would really try to position portfolios in a more um, comprehensive way, thinking about things beyond the traditional asset classes, such as stocks and bonds, and diversifying further into other areas of the capital market. Well, we could drill into all of those areas in some more detail. <laughs> sure. um, maybe, let, maybe let's start with how you ended, and we'll come back to the valuations on some of those quality baskets. The, um, the, the 60-40, that, you know, the, the preaching to the choir with Professor Siegel and myself, we've, we've been saying the 75-25 is the new 60-40. What is your – when you go to – what else to do with the challenge of low return bonds? Are, are you thinking about commodities, alternatives? Like what is, how are you trying to um, position away from the sort of low expected returns that you're finding in, in, in the bond side today? It's all of the above. And so I think you're right. The margin people probably can be affording, uh, can afford to take a little bit more risk by moving maybe into equities at the expense of fixed income. Um, so I, I like the idea of, you said 75, 25, 
maybe we're, we're 70, 30, 10, or 70, 20, 10, rather. So maybe 10% might be in, in other asset classes, such as real assets. You've talked a little bit about that. Commodities can be somewhat fickle. So uh, we, we like to have a basket approach when we think about uh, real assets in general. So that might include something like treasury inflation protected securities or TIPS. Uh, we might look at preferred stocks or things like that to generate some income. I think real estate is going to be an interesting place to invest in the next several years, given some of the dislocations in the real estate market. So if you can find a really strong partner um, to invest in opportunistic real estate, I think that would be interesting as well. And I think the private markets are also still ripe with a lot of opportunities, um, not the least of which could be expressed in real estate again. So I think how you structure a portfolio is going to be, have to re- be rethought. I think along those lines, you're talking a little bit about being more um, aggressive in terms of giving up some liquidity. Um, and so you want to make sure your, your portfolio really takes those things into account and making sure you can address the questions around liquidity. But overall, I think you're right to think that, um, that the, the fixed income or maybe the 40% of that 60-40 portfolio is really obsolete going forward. Um, well, let's let's go back to you know the the opportunities in you know when you when you talk to quality. I mean, I when when I look at sort of relative returns, you know, you you do see some segments. I mean, it's, it started the year with small caps value leading, you know, expensive everything else, but. You know, you mentioned strong balance sheet companies, and there was a, a chart that I was I was showing from Goldman Sachs of like the strong balance sheets versus weak balance sheets. And at one point, like maybe a month ago, two months ago, it was it was something like a 30 percentage point, like 3,000 basis point spread between strong, you know, weak balance sheets outperforming strong balance sheets. Is that something you're you're watching, noticing that these these uh, quality stocks have become unloved because of this inflation narrative, debt? you know, getting devalued with high inflation. Is that some of what's going on there? Yeah, I, I think that that's a really great way to look at it, Jeremy. And I would probably echo that in the sense that some of the, the really most speculative companies or maybe the companies with the most stressed balance sheets probably, to your point, really did really well coming out of the pandemic. Um, you know, debt was pretty cheap. Um, you know, they were able, able to repair the balance sheets. Some of those companies actually were probably more traditional or early stage recovery plays, right? And they probably had the biggest bounce back. So it's not surprising to hear you say that there was some vast outperformance uh, in those type of companies. I would posit that going forward, the companies that were probably a bit of a laggard, as you mentioned, in that environment are probably poised for some um, some some uh, performance going forward. And I think the other thing we, we've been kind of leaning towards a little bit at the margin is recognizing that some of the capitalization weighted indices, and I know this is something you're also passionate about, but some of those cap-weighted indices are, are really, they've, they've, done, they've done spectacularly well, um, but you do have some concentration risk there too. I mean, you've got some companies that are, that are great companies in their own right, but they represent significant portions of that index. And so as this recovery continues to take hold, we think it's appropriate to look at other indices when you think about even just your exposure to passive investments. So equal-weighted S&P 500 funds, for example, and indices, you know, that's a really nice way to kind of play uh, the overall recovery and also at the same time uh, really kind of get some broader exposure to still investing in large cap uh, companies that are S&P 500 quality companies. So I, I think those are other ways to maybe kind of play the theme about a recovery in the sense that you're not just buying the largest mega cap uh, names, but also maybe a, a more broader cross-section of the, uh, of the market in general. Let me introduce our guest here. We're talking with George Mateo, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Key Private Bank, about some of the way he's looking at the markets today. And uh, so we talked about going a little bit more equities, going a little bit towards uh, quality within portfolios. Talk a little bit more about that view on international. Um, How do you uh, think about 
strategic allocation to international, how you think about now the currency factoring into that, like what is a, a typical investor you think, you know, should go outside the U.S. since the U.S. has been like the only game in town for the last decade? Yeah, it really has. So anytime in the last decade that, that I or we would have recommended uh, looking at international, it probably would have been to somebody's uh, modest detriment, perhaps, because they, they've lagged. I mean, they haven't really been massive underperformers over time, but they certainly have uh, they certainly have lagged. And I would also suggest, Jeremy, that I don't know if I've got any great insights into predicting currency. I'm not sure if anybody really does. Maybe I should ask the question to the professor about currency uh, forecasts, because I think you can lose a lot of money just trying to guess where the dollar's going to go in the short term. But I think um, it's not surprising. And so with that backdrop, I guess it's not surprising to see the dollar strengthen a little bit in the last two weeks or so, right? We've kind of seen uh, economic growth slow down a little bit. It's still pretty good, but I think it's slowing a little bit. Obviously, as the professor mentioned, there's been some reverberations in China that maybe compound that a little bit. I think over the longer period of time, though, I think it's more likely that the dollar might be a little bit weaker than stronger. And I'm not calling for an absolute collapse in the dollar like, like some people might. Um, because I still think there's reason to suggest that the U.S. still is, is you know, really in a great position in the sense that we enjoy a, a reserve currency status. Uh, we've got a mobile workforce. Uh, we've probably got the most um, innovative people on the planet working on things. And so I think overall, I think the greenback can really kind of stay pretty strong over time. But I do think at the margin, it might be modestly weaker given our fiscal situation. Um, and I think that's a long term secular kind of theme. And so for that reason alone, I don't think you want to abandon international markets um, on, a, on a secular basis. So we tend to advocate for maybe a, a split between, call it 30, 35% or so of somebody's equity portfolio invested internationally, and the balance called, you know, two-thirds or so of somebody's portfolio invested uh, domestically. Uh, and that, I think, is kind of a fair trade-off to get some of the diversification benefits that we, see, we think are still there. In the more short term, I think it's important to recognize that the international markets are a bit more cyclically oriented, meaning some of the companies or the indices that make up those markets have a greater exposure towards value, right? So we talked a little bit about value and growth and, and some things like that. There is a bit more of a cyclical bent in some of the international markets. And again, if you can find high quality companies in international markets, and we think there are plenty of opportunities, I think that's also a place to, uh, to, to invest in capital. I think one of the things going on right now is some of it is the euro um, and you know the dollar has been everybody came into this year you know ourselves professor Siegel included calling for a little bit of a weaker dollar all the spending all the inflation um, now what should now the dollar's rallied and you know what's going on now is uh, is basically a fed call that the euro is correlating with the fed and expectation for faster fed tightening and sort of the two to five year spread on the bond side is, is sort of really moving with the euro. So it'll be interesting um, with the Fed to, to be a, a, sort of, a sort of watch point there. Oh, indeed it will, yeah. And he's, he's certainly better equipped to talk about that than I am in terms of his, uh, his insights to the currency markets. And I think it, it, you're, you're right, there was a big positioning kind of at the beginning of this year where everybody was betting that the dollar would fall. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons that it's, you know, uh, the market always has a way of proving people wrong more times than not. So when consensus moves to one side, it's probably not surprising to see people reverse and have to reverse quickly. So maybe maybe the question for him might be how much of this recent rally is short covering, right? Or how much of this is just reversal of positioning that's caused the dollar to have a bit of a bit. I think, I think some of the factors you mentioned around the Fed and again around the coronavirus might actually be other factors too. Um, so we'll have to see. I think it probably depends on your time, time horizon, right? If the next three months is focused on maybe a bit of a dollar strength, but the next three years might be a different story, I would, I would suggest. 
So far, we've talked a little bit, you know, U.S. foreign um, stocks over bond. I, I, I started the show with the professor saying we have a small cap. So we've already hit his 10% pullback that he was calling for. Do you, uh, are, are you, and then your equal weighted comments kind of are a comment on sort of small caps over large caps. But any, how do you, how do you think about sort of specific small cap allocation? Do you think about that internationally? Where any Any comments there? Yeah, I think we're we're probably of the same uh, mindset as the professor that there's probably some interesting value there. I think there's probably an interesting case to be made that um, the Russell 2000 and some of those uh, uh, small cap indices probably do contain a fair number of companies that are, are like poised to struggle. I mean, those are companies that have those more stressed balance sheets that I talked about. So when we see uh, maybe slowing down in the economy and some other things, it's not surprising to see that uh, that. Um, that, that underperformance, if you will. But again, I, I think that the bigger issue is, is the, the fact that if we believe the economy is going to reopen, if we think that the, the Delta variant is somewhat cyclical and temporary in nature, and we hope it is, um, I do think there's going to be more of a broadening recovery. And so again, I would probably necessarily, not necessarily chase small caps per se, but again, I think that equal weighted index is kind of a nice way to play that exposure where, again, you're getting, I guess, if you want to say the smallest of the large cap stocks uh, as a way to, uh, to hedge your bet there and also gain some exposure to more of the broadening recovery theme that we think is still in the cards. Um, as, as you think about building portfolios, are there, um, and we've talked about some factors, is, do, you, do you sort of look at any sectors and, and think about um, you know, the, a lot of the trends in investing is going towards thematics and, and things like that. Any, any, any growth areas or, or, or sector views of, of, of how you're, you're positioning portfolios? We're not uh, too big into the sector rotation, uh, rotation game. Uh, we think that sometimes it's hard to do on a, um, on a longer term basis. So we're somewhat agnostic towards the sectors, but again, some of the factors you mentioned, I think again, resonate with us. So we again would emphasize quality um, you know, I think the momentum factor is an interesting one. We're not really exposed to that right now, but I think it's an interesting way to kind of think about how you might gain exposure to some of the, the faster-growing companies uh, and tends to be an index that changes a lot. I think you actually had some interesting uh, thoughts about that a few months ago when that, that decomposition or the reorientation of the momentum factor occurred. I mean, that was a really pretty big shift in terms of how the individual companies and the sectors inside that momentum factor really you know, changed quite dramatically in, in a short period of time. So I think momentum is kind of interesting to think about uh, over a long period of time. The, the name momentum probably conjures up a bit uh, emotion for some investors that might be positive or negative, depends how you think about momentum. Um, but I think it does actually tend to have a longer term benefit in your portfolio if you can gain some modest exposure there. But for us, quality is a big thing. I think we're watching very carefully for the market to find some direction here in the second half. And as I mentioned, as we go through these, these three transitions, we're very careful to make sure that we're really not at the end of the cycle. And I think if there is a, a point that maybe we think the cycle is getting pretty tired and we're not there yet for sure, but if we get to that point or when we get to that point, I think the, the other factor that we might start thinking about sometime down the road is that minimum volatility factor. Right? That's a pretty, way, pretty interesting way to place some defensiveness inside your equity portfolio when the cycle does get a little bit tired. Again, I'm not suggesting we're there yet, um, and that could be you know, a few years away potentially, but that's another factor that we would actually put in our quiver to think about uh, if that, if that, uh, that scenario unfolds. So maybe final question. We haven't quite talked geopolitics. Also, a lot of stories. I know you wrote about Afghanistan recently, what that means for your portfolios. As you think about just sort of different risks, how does that play into any outlooks or, or any, any closing thoughts on, on how you're looking at portfolios? Sure, sure. 
oftentimes, you know, sometimes I would kind of think that the best thing to do is nothing when it comes to politics in portfolios, right? Because it'd be a lot of, there could be a lot of rhetoric and a lot of motions in terms of what people say to get elected versus what they actually say when they are elected. So I think sometimes you can really be whipsawed if you're not too, um, uh, too careful about it. I do think that um, <clears throat> the situation in Washington this, um, this next couple of months could be kind of interesting. We have a debt ceiling that we have to navigate around. I think ultimately that'll, uh, that'll get passed and will get approved and probably raised. But there could be some you know, political uncertainties around that in the near term that could potentially create some uncertainty as well. The other transition that people will probably start thinking about in the latter half of this year is the reappointment um, of Jay Powell as, as Fed chair. So I think there's probably likely to be some noise um, in, the, in the next couple months or so. But again, I think people should probably be best served by thinking about the long term, thinking about their long term portfolio allocation. And again, for us, that comes back to the discussion that we talked about a minute ago, which is 60-40 is dead. And so if you adopt a 75-25 mix, you're probably better off in the long run because of a more um, diversified portfolio and hopefully more of a concentration towards growth and uh, overall prosperity of the portfolio. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.